Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Content warning. Check the show notes for more information. It's June 28th, 1951, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Ariel, Rebecca, and Ollie, the Retrospectors. The Amos and Andy show represents a strange paradox in the history of black representation in the US, because on the one hand, the TV show, which debuted today in history in 1951, was a collection of demeaning racial stereotypes pulled together in the name of ostensible comedy. But on the other hand, it came as a breakthrough of sorts, given it was the first TV show to feature an entirely black cast, a distinction that didn't prevent it from being engulfed in an immediate firestorm of protest from its very first first episode. Yeah, and in 1951, this was pretty much the only place American TV viewers could see more than one black person on screen at a time. But even that wasn't really a given from the off, because Amos and Andy were already a popular double act from the radio, where they had been played for almost 20 years by white voice actors. Yeah, so again, sort of progressive, isn't it? Let's recast it with black people playing (laughs) these archetypes that have previously been played by white people in, well, could you call it blackface when on the radio? Mm. Complicated. Yeah, the audio minstrelsy. The audio minstrelsy, exactly. It's a bit like, do you remember when we talked in Tom and Jerry about when they changed Mammy Two-Shoes from being a hurtful black stereotype to a hurtful Irish stereotype? Right. (laughs) Well, it was not at all a given either that the TV executives at CBS would even be able to find the actors to fill this all-black cast of characters because, as you said, there hadn't been a TV show that was all black before. So they didn't know. I mean, of course there were. There were lots of talented African-Americans, but they didn't know who they were. Um, And the New York Times reporting on this talked about it as the most extensive talent hunt in the history of show business. (laughs) It said that the search had taken two years and included suggestions from President Truman and General Eisenhower, and that considering the problems involved, it is probably as good a casting job as could be done. (laughs) It's extraordinary to think, what's the challenge here? Finding some black people who can act, but that's how this was seen at the time. Yeah, and the African-Americans who actually made it onto the show at least came out in response to this brewing firestorm and said, look, this isn't all bad because look at what we at least have achieved in getting on TV in the first place. But this really didn't slow down the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP, and their objection to the show. And they their basic claim was that it, quote, depicted Negroes in a stereotyped and derogatory manner. And they actually filed a formal lawsuit against against CBS, which asserted, and again I quote, that the show strengthened the conclusion among uninformed and prejudiced people that Negroes are inferior, lazy, dumb and dishonest. So basically they were saying, it doesn't matter how much you've gone out of your way to cast this thing, it's still a fundamentally flawed product. Yeah, I mean, the objections revolved around the undeniable truth that although the show did indeed depict a wide variety of black life, all of that variety was basically rooted in different unpleasant stereotypes. Mm. And 
it was a time when there was a higher tolerance for ethnic humour and there was a higher tolerance for what we would see as kind of broad caricature humour. But even so, it was all rooted in depictions of characters being work shy, lazy, gullible, these real kind of vaudeville type characters. Mm. But then I think the the kind of complicated legacy was that, again, it was providing these roles on TV that were being watched by millions to actors who had spent their entire careers, for the most part, playing basically maids and valets and porters. Yes, and just because the characters being portrayed spoke in slang and were quacks and thieves and clowns, as the NAACP put it, that doesn't mean that they weren't warm and relatable. And actually, particularly African-American audiences were massively attracted to these characters. 75% of African-Americans polled at the time said they watched it and enjoyed it. The disconcerting bit was that issue of representation. If the only representation of you was as working-class nerdwell, then even if it's funny, it's objectionable just because you're not showing any other side of black life. Yeah, we have to go back a step and explain that the radio show from which the TV show was born was so immensely popular. It was enormous. In fact, some historians say that it was the most popular radio show ever broadcast in the US. It came about as the brainchild of Freeman Gosden and Charles Coral, who were the two white performers that Rebecca mentioned. And they both had Southern roots. Gosden's father fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War, and Coral was a dis- relative of Jefferson Davis, who served as the first and only president of the Confederate state. So these two performers were quite embedded in the Deep South. They started up a first show called Sam and Henry that debuted in Chicago in 1925. They were actually paid with food instead of cash because they were kind of that much (laughs) struggling actors at the beginning of their careers. But eventually they had to leave those two characters behind because they moved to a different network and they came up with Amos and Andy there. And Amos and Andy started its life as kind of a satire on what was going on at the time in the mid-20s, the great migration of black people from the rural south to the northern cities. And there they were often looked down upon by blacks and whites alike who saw them as being, you know, gullible and uneducated and made fun of them. And by the 1950s, that was no longer really as much of a current stereotype. And so I think by the time it came to TV, it came to be seen as a little bit more like minstrelsy. But I think in the 1920s, audiences would have recognised it as a reflection that was something that was happening at the time. So it's about these two friends, so Amos, who, as time went on, basically kind of got shut out of the show. It was called Amos and Andy, but Amos was barely ever in it. He was kind of the honest, not particularly bright, but hardworking guy. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of Happy Days Mm. when, you know, we talked about how essentially it became the Fonzie show. Like, there's a sidekick in it called Kingfish, and it all becomes about Kingfish, even though it's still called (laughs) Amos and Andy. Yeah, and so the plots were revolving around them. They ran a taxi firm in Harlem and they basically got into lots of get-rich-quick schemes, etc., etc. The weird thing that I found looking at the plots of the radio show versus the TV show is that the radio show could be weirdly controversial and dramatic. Like, there was this storyline in the radio show where Andy becomes a victim of police brutality and this so infuriated police unions that the storyline was cut short and written out as being a bad dream that he woke up from. And I thought wow, that would not have happened in the 1950s TV version with actual Mm. black people in it. Yeah, it sounds amazing how it was, you know, first and foremost a comedy, but it had this sort of episodic drama about it. The way that that Gosden and Coral wove the show was that they had kind of cliffhanger endings. And between the two of them, they also brought to life this entire world. They did 170 different male voice characterizations on the radio show. And then a lot of those characters 
characters did then make it across to the TV show. But of course, the TV show only ran for two years. And so you have this strange situation where for 20 years, you've had this huge radio show where the two main characters, after whom it's named, are played by white people. And that attracts less criticism, despite being massive, than the TV version when they're actually played by black people. Mm. It's quite curious. But it's not as if there hadn't been any objection to the radio show. All the way back to the early 1930s, there was a protest in the Pittsburgh Courier, for example, which campaigned against the series for six months and got 750,000 signatures on a petition to cancel the series. But the enormous popularity was outweighing the discontent. And it was what you were saying about it being very lightly humorous. It's not really laugh out loud. It is like a soap. It is. Mm. These are characters you want to spend time with. And I think that very relatability muted some of those concerns. It seems like at the moment that it was beamed into people's homes and they could see it, that it really began to concern the NAACP. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it didn't help that the series premiere was scheduled to air during the NAACP National Convention, which must have seemed like an extra kick in the teeth. And the strange thing is that even while the polemic over the TV show is raging on and then would ultimately kill it, you know, ultimately the Blatt's Brewing Company, who was the sponsor, pulled their sponsorship and that was the show's death knell. The radio series continued until 1960. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the weirdest thing that also they'd done a blackface version in film starring Gosden and Coral dressed up in blackface. There wasn't so much outcry when that happened as there was when... Well, that was 1930. And I think that that's what this kind of suggests, that what we're seeing is the changing of attitudes, not just the sort of updating of the show. It's the fact that people are waking up to the fact that you know, things are pretty terrible and there's a lot of racism about. And actually, ironically, by axing this show in 1953, what CBS managed to do was continue monetizing it for themselves until 1966, (laughs) when finally the syndication of the show ended, but stop paying the black performers who were in it, (laughs) who only ever made their show fees for the two years that it was being made. So, you know, that's not an entirely straightforward win for the NAACP either, is it? (laughs) You know, we talked about how this was the only place that you could hear authentic, you know, working class black dialect going on on screen. But the weird thing about it was that because the characters of the show were already really familiar from the radio show, Gosden and Carol actually recorded the dialogue of the first episode like on disc and gave it to Alvin Childress, Spencer Williams and Tim Moore, who'd be playing Amos and Andy and the Kingfish. And they had to kind of learn to talk yeah. like these white guys who were impersonating black guys. It was very macabre. That is weird. weird. But also, like, I think that hints at what I was quoting from the New York Times, where they were saying that the hunt for talent was so complex. Yeah. It was twofolded, to be fair. They were saying, on the one hand, do we know that there's enough black talent to go on TV? But they were actually also saying the entire nation has a mental picture of what these guys sound like from the radio. And, of course, the power of bonding with characters over decades in a radio comedy is that you have your own image of what they look like. Yeah. And you can actually literally never match that in people's heads. Yeah, it's the recasting of James Bond or the regeneration of Doctor Who. It's like a thing that you're always going to struggle with because people have a very firm and fixed idea. They're so connected to these characters, given how much they've been listening to them every single day for like 15 minutes for the last 20 or 30 years. I don't know. I've got a cracking young Spanish guy who's going to play Aaron McNichol in our I'll send you his picture later. I think you'll be pleased. Tomorrow. Every time you slag me off, I'm counting it for 500 grand. We're at 6.5 already, just so you know. 
Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.